Not sure what to make for dinner? Need some inspiration? Mondays and Wednesdays, join Gabriel and his food hero guests on The Dinner Special. And now, here's your host, Gabriel So. Welcome to The Dinner Special. I am Gabriel So, and I am so thrilled to have Kathy Barrow of Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Kitchen here on the show today. Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Kitchen was started in 2009, and it's where Kathy shares her cooking, baking, preserving, and keeping of her practical pantry. Her recipes have been included in the Food 52 cookbook, Al Roker made her Thanksgiving stuffing on the Today Show, and she has been featured in the Washington Post. Kathy recently released the her first cookbook, Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Practical Pantry, which won the 2015 IACP Single Subject Cookbook Award. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kathy. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Gabriel. Awesome. Now, Kathy, your blog, Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Kitchen, what first drew you to start documenting your food adventures? I had been a landscape designer for about 10 years, and I was really a happy landscape designer. I have a big garden, a flower garden, and many, many clients in my general neighborhood. And in 2008, when we all suffered a little bit from a change in the economy, let's say, my landscape business dried up, not just a little, but sort of completely. And I know all the reasons for it now, but at the time, I couldn't really see clear. I was pretty depressed. And several friends of mine who had you know, come to my kitchen to eat, who I'd helped learn how to make pie dough or learn how to cook with different ingredients, they all said, you should be teaching cooking classes. And I said, well, that's just a great idea. How will anybody ever find out about it? And their response was, have you heard of this thing called a blog? And I had not. I had never read one. I was really not part of that world. So I started doing some research, and one of those friends was a graphic designer and helped me set up the site, taught me a few simple tricks to figure out how to like load a photo, and off I went. Nobody was more surprised than I was that anybody actually read it. So. Wow, it's pretty crazy because it's quite a departure from what you were doing previously, being sort of outside and doing, you know, work outdoors to being sort of in front of a computer all day with your blog. Right. But I do feel that there's a very distinct line that you can draw from gardening to cooking, and particularly the kind of cooking I do that is so seasonally dependent. My knowledge of the garden makes me a better preserver in many ways. Totally. I think that there's a definite connection there because, you know, you're really passionate about canning preservation. We'll get into that a little bit later. But, you know, was there someone who sparked your curiosity in cooking? Well, when I was very young, I cooked with all of my female relatives. My great-grandmother taught me how to preserve. My grandmother taught me a lot of classic Jewish cooking. My mother experimented with every PBS show that was on, starting with Julia, Natalie Dupree, and I mean, we cooked everything from PBS together, so even when I was very young, and I've been cooking forever, I can't remember a time that I didn't. Right, so it sounds like it was really through osmosis, it was transferred down to you through generations. I think that also if you like to eat, it's not a big leap to learn how to cook, because it's hard to get sometimes the food that you really love if you don't make it yourself. Right. And it's always best when it's sort of a uh, made with love. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> now, with everything you do, in my mind, they're quite different skill sets, like cooking versus baking and preservation. How did you learn? Was it through just your parents and your mom and your grandmother? Or 
did you go to cooking classes and cookbooks and online resources? Well, I definitely took some cooking classes that were very helpful, and I read a lot of cookbooks. My curiosity led me to want to learn how to make certain things. I mean, I remember maybe even 25 years ago deciding that I wanted to learn how to make a baguette. And this was long before you could just Google how to make a baguette or go to YouTube. And what I found was that maybe the first one wasn't good, but the second one was better. And the third one was even better than that. I recently read something Sam Sifton wrote in the New York Times where he said that cooking is like yoga. It's a practice. It's not something that you're born knowing. But the more you practice, the better you get at it. And I've been sort of doggedly determined to learn how to make certain things, even in the face of failure. So I think that's probably the best answer I can give you. Great. Now, when did you start developing your own recipes and start to sort of branch out into your own culinary path? I think I've been developing my own recipes forever, but it never occurred to me that it was something unusual until I became part of a larger community. I think for many of us, you know, joining the internet and starting to share recipes was a revelation. We either thought we were all alone in the world because my friends, of course, are like, you're crazy spending eight weeks trying to figure out how to make a croissant. And then I find this group of people who do the same thing I do, and it's so thrilling to me. So I've always gone to restaurants and tasted it and then come home and tried to recreate things. Or I've decided I'm going to study Szechuan cooking and just cooked everything in a book until I felt that I was confident enough that I could take that education and those flavors and start to riff on it a little bit. I definitely started working on my own recipes when I married a vegetarian because Dennis would prefer not to eat much meat. He does eat a little bit, but not much. He'll eat a little chicken. And so I was pretty meat-centric when I met him. And now having to learn to take some of my favorite recipes and translate them into something that can be become vegetarian has been a big education for me. It's a lot of fun. Right. Were you always this fearless and brave in the kitchen? <laughs> yeah, I think most of my friends would say that I'm sort of fearless and brave overall. I mean, I've started businesses without really worrying about whether I would have anything to eat. I used to jump horses over big fences. I used to ski really fast. So I think all these things are, yeah, fearlessness. I don't get scared. The worst thing that can happen is I'll have to throw it out and order a pizza. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Now, you started a charcuterie project back in 2011 called Charcuta Palooza, and were featured in the Washington Post for it. Even though this takes us back a bit, I think it's super fun and interesting. So for those of us who aren't familiar with it, can you tell us what it was and how it all came together? Well, how it came together is really crazy. There, a friend of mine on Twitter, it happened that it was a late December Sunday morning. The tree was up. The presents were wrapped. The cookies were mailed. It was actually like the first Sunday that I wasn't crazy with things to do. And I was hanging out in my kitchen, playing on Twitter. And a friend of mine said, it's so cold in my basement, I could hang meat. And I said, if you hang a duck breast, you'll have prosciutto in seven days. Really? Was the answer. And I don't know what kind of divine intervention happened, but I literally saw this whole program sort of lay out for me. I'd been thinking a lot about 
what I might do to push my blog up a little bit in terms of recognition. And it became clear to me that my knowledge of how to make charcuterie at home as a home cook could be the basis for an education program. So I got off of Twitter at that very moment and I sketched out a 12-month education program to go each month and learn something about charcuterie following the guide of Michael Ruhlman's great book, Charcuterie. And I came back online and said, hey, here's the idea. And a lot of people said, we'd love to do that. And it became a blogger challenge. Over the next couple of weeks after that, I started making random phone calls to see if I could find some sponsors. And one of my dearest friends now, who I didn't know at all, Kate Hill in France, offered a week-long charcuterie program at her French retreat in, the, in Gascony. And that was going to be the grand prize. So I was trying to establish how you would get the prize and how it would be voted on. And Anyway, I worked out those details, but I also realized that just offering somebody a week-long thing in France wasn't enough. You had to get them there. So then I found a travel agent called Truffle Pig. I didn't know them at all, but I just went to their contact form on the web and said, hey, you've got a great name and I've got this crazy idea and would you give me free tickets to France? And they came back and said, sure, and we'll do train tickets and hotels and how about a party. And I mean, they were so generous. And so I just sort of put this program together and about 400 bloggers around the world participated and Food52 partnered with us and ran the whole program on their site. And it was just tremendously fun. And what I loved is that in September of that year, Kate Hill invited me to her farm in the south of France. So I got to do that same charcuterie training. It was wonderful. Wow. Again, a fearless again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do have to think twice before you like leap into hanging meat from the ceiling of your garage. But I felt like I had enough smart people helping me out. Bob Del Grosso, who had taught charcuterie and garde manger at the CIA, is a great friend now. And he was right there to help me out. I'd take pictures and say, hey, Bob, does this look right to you? Go, oh, yeah, that's okay. And you know, he taught me great things like mold is okay unless it's black and hairy, and in that case, you should throw it out. So, you know, I had a few guidelines like that. But yes, it was pretty fearless. Right. Well, the idea of making my own charcuterie as a home cook sounds so fun and interesting. You just mentioned that, you know, looking out for black mold that's hairy is sort of a good indication of something that hasn't been done probably properly. What is the most basic and simple recipe for someone who wants to try making their own charcuterie? Oh, well, I always say to start with bacon. I mean, you can't go wrong. Everybody loves bacon. And once you have it, you'll join that forever club. You'll never go back. Bacon, simply, you get a pork belly, you cure it for a week in the refrigerator, and then you roast it very, very low until it comes to a temperature that's safe. So there's no hanging it in the closet. There's nothing dangerous or unsafe about it. It's going to be refrigerated, then it's going to be cooked. But it'll change your mind about charcuterie right then and there. You'll never go back. Yeah, awesome. Now, by curing, you mean by salting it? Yes, salting. And then you can add other flavorings, too. I mean, you can do plain salt, but I personally 
have a combination in my book that is maple syrup, bourbon, and coffee. And those three things with some salt makes a really delicious bacon. Great. Now, are there some common mistakes or pitfalls beginners make when they're just starting out with charcuterie? I think that the biggest mistake you can make is not buying really good meat. Buying commodity meats makes it more difficult to be precise with charcuterie, mostly because there's too much water in most commodity meat, and you need to get the water out in order to make safe charcuterie. And sometimes that means that what we look for, for instance, in most charcuteries, a 30% weight loss will tell you that that meat is ready if you're hanging it. But if you have commodity or commercial pork, for instance, it might have such a high water content that it'll need to reduce more. So I, I would say buying the best possible meat from sources that you know is going to guarantee more success. Perfect. Now, you mentioned Michael Roman's charcuterie book. Can you share any good online resources or books for a home cook who may want to dive more deeply into making their own charcuterie? I think Michael's book is a really great place to start. And then there's a new book by Jeffrey Weiss called Charcuteria, and that's more Spanish. There's Jane Grigson's classic charcuterie book from England. But I really think if you want to learn charcuterie, you just start with Michael Ruhlman's book and work from the front to the back. Or you can get my book, which has a sort of small, discreet, and very simple chapter on charcuterie. Absolutely. I mean, I was just going to say that as well. <laughs> you can start with Kathy's book. <laughs> now, Kathy, you recently released a book called Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Practical Pantry. First off, congratulations on being awarded the IACP Single Subject Cookbook Award. That was very thrilling. The most thrilling part was that Curtis Stone gave me the award and a hug. And I mean, the rest of the night, people are saying, congratulations. I, I know, Curtis Stone. They were talking about the award. <laughs> awesome. Well, can you tell me more about your book? Yes. I set out to write a book that would really be a primer on all kinds of preserving. Because as long as I've been doing it and looking for resources, I couldn't find one book that had everything I needed. So I also wanted to make sure that the book not only would take you through all the steps necessary to learn how to preserve everything, like jams and jellies and pickles, tomatoes, also meats and beans and soups and fish and dairy, like cheese, then I worry that so many people don't think about what they're going to do with all those jars they put on the shelf. So I included 35 recipes using what you've preserved. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the thing. I think a lot of cookbooks or books about preserving are talking about either jams or pickles. So I think it's really cool that you talk about, you know, smokes and brines and salting and curds. Do you feel that food preservation is a bit of a lost art today? I think it's coming back. But for me, there's preserving at one level, which is making the jams and the jellies and the pickles. And that's great. But that's not really sustainable. I mean, it's hobby preserving. I'm very interested in more of that pantry building in this practical sense and the sustainable nature of preserving and how that means that I can eat locally year-round, that I can keep my food money in my community by purchasing from my local farmers all summer, preserving that food, and then eating it all winter long. Awesome. Well, you just answered my next question because I was just going to ask you, what does a practical pantry mean to you? So That's it right there. It means that I can come home from a long trip 
and I don't have to run to the grocery store or call for Chinese takeout, but I can just go downstairs into my pantry and find all kinds of things that are right there for me to eat. Perfect. Now, Kathy, here at the Dinner Special, we talk with food heroes about dinner dishes that are special to them and how we can make it at home. Can you talk about a dish that is special to you and maybe a little bit about the story behind the dish? Does it have to be dinner or can it be dessert? Oh, it can be dessert. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say that sour cherry pie is probably my defining dish. I've been eating and loving sour cherry pie all of my life. My stepdad, Bill, who's a really great guy, has been in my life for most of it, has a birthday that coincides with sour cherries being available. And so every single year, we would make him a sour cherry pie for his birthday cake. And one of the first things I learned to do when I started preserving, you know, at this level, sort of intensely, was I learned to make pie fillings so I could make him a pie anytime. And in fact, in 2010, my sour cherry pie was given a blue ribbon at a local farmer's market in a pie contest. And the person who awarded that blue ribbon to me was Bonnie Benwick, who is now my editor at the Washington Post food section. So it's a real, I feel like that pie has brought me all kinds of luck. Right. Now, let's say you were making this sour cherry pie, and you could invite three famous people over to share this pie with. Who would you invite? Well, I'll tell you, I would invite Michelle Obama absolutely first, because I know she loves pie. And I think that everything she's doing with that White House garden is really exciting, but she never talks about preserving. So I would like to get her so I could just have a chat with her. And if I gave her pie, it would sort of smooth the way. Gosh, other than that, I think I would really love to chat with Dan Barber. I mean, I think what he's doing at Blue Hill is so exciting. There's so many people I would like to invite to my house. And I think maybe I'd go for an author that I admire, like Margaret Atwood or something, because she's got a lot to say about the world. Perfect. No, and maybe Curtis Stone would be presenting you the pie? Yeah, my boyfriend. (laughs) Now, let's say that this was actually a pie and movie situation. What movie would you pair with your sour cherry pie? Oh, that wonderful movie Waitress. Remember where she made pies? Yeah, that would have to be it. I love that movie. I watched it like slowly so I could try to replicate all those pies. They just look terrific. I love that movie. Perfect. Now, Kathy, I call the next part of the Dinner Special podcast the pressure cooker. I'm going to ask you seven fast and fun questions that we want to know your answers to. Are you up for it? I'm up for it. Perfect. Number one, which food shows or cooking shows do you watch? I watch so few. I'll admit that I like the vintage ones best. I go back. I like to watch old Julia, especially Julia and Jacques Pepin. Those are great. I do love Sarah Moulton. I think she's just a solid cook. And my husband and I used to watch her show a lot when we first got married. And so I've always loved to watch Sarah. Great. Number two, what are some food blogs or websites we have to know about? Oh, well, I hope you know about Cheryl Sternman Rule's new teen yogurt blog, which is wonderful. She's been writing the blog Five Second Rule for a long time and had a beautiful vegetable book out called Ripe a while back. But now she has a new book called Yogurt Culture and a coordinating blog called Team Yogurt. And it's a marvelous website. I love to follow my friend Marty, who writes the blog Eat, Live, Travel, Write. 
And she's been working with these young chefs, these young boys in her chef class. It's so fun to watch what they make. In the preserving area, Food in Jars, Hip Girl's Guide, those are great resources, well-preserved out of Canada. Love those. I mean, I read a lot. Of course, I'm smitten with Smitten Kitchen. She's genius. David Leibovitz, I love. I guess that's maybe a start. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I read blogs every day, a lot of them. I wish I wrote as frequently as the ones I admire. I mean to get to it more. Right. Now, number three, who do you follow on Pinterest, Instagram, or Facebook that make you happy? I follow my friend Kate Spinillo on Facebook and on Instagram because she raises chickens and pigs, and she had polka-dotted pigs earlier this year. And sometimes I just had to go and look at those pigs because they're so cute. I love following them. I'm passionate about punk domestics. I follow everything they do. Sean Timberlake collects all kinds of DIY and preserving information there. So I really always follow what he's doing. And I'm, I love Food 52. Who doesn't? I mean, they're brilliant. They do everything wonderful. Absolutely. Now, number four, what is the most unusual or treasured item you have in your kitchen? I have three things that I brought back from the south of France. One is a handmade cassoule to make cassoulet. It's big terracotta and just beautiful. I also have a pepper grinder. It could be a coffee grinder, but I use it for pepper. It's a little wooden box with a thing that turns on the top and a drawer that pulls out. And the pepper comes out sort of in a large cracked form, and it's perfect to coat pastrami or to put on the outside of uh, pancetta. And then on that same trip, my friend Kate's sister, Stephanie, found these little fevs. Often they're babies that are put in the Mardi Gras cakes. You probably have seen if you get the baby, then it's going to be your year. But in France, they have them for all the professions. So these tiny little pastries and sugars and confiture, and they're just like little ceramic things that sit on my stove and make me happy. Awesome. <laughs> Number five, name one ingredient you used to dislike that you now love. Anchovies. can't get enough of them. That's the only one I can think of. I mean, I'm pretty much an omnivore, but for a long time I wasn't sure at all about anchovies, and now I can't get enough. Perfect. Number six, what are a few cookbooks that make your life better? Well, I'm really a fan of the old ones. I turn to Marcella Hazan and the classic Italian cookbook all the time. It's just a brilliant book. I love the pairings after every recipe. So if you find one recipe you want to make, you know then what to make for an anapasta and what should be your contorni. It's really lovely. Edna Lewis's book, The Taste of Country Cooking, I read that all the time because her voice is beautiful and the recipes are just intense and organic and natural, like what you would do if you saw beautiful things growing and brought them back to your kitchen. I like to read Lori Colwyn's Home Cooking and all of her recipes. And the Canal House ladies, man, they were my photographers, Christopher and Melissa, and they can't do wrong as far as I'm concerned. Every cookbook they have, you can just open it up, point, and make it, and you're going to be happy. Fantastic. And finally, number seven, what song or album just makes you want to cook? You know, I'll admit, I don't listen to a lot of music in the kitchen. It's oddly distracting for me. More likely, when things are processing, then I might turn something on and just dance. I've been listening to Ellie Goulding a lot lately, and 
you know, I just never know what I want to put on and sort of dance around the kitchen. But while I'm cooking, I'm concentrating often on trying to measure ingredients. And I find music, because I love it so much, totally distracting. Perfect. Congratulations, Kathy. You have officially survived the pressure cooker. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for joining me here on the Dinner Special Podcast. You're all over social media. What's the best way for us to keep up with what you're up to? I'm Mrs. Wheelbarrow everywhere. You'll find me on Instagram. On Facebook, it's Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Kitchen. Twitter, it's Mrs. Wheelbarrow. And I guess at the blog on my contact form. Right. And of course, the blog is mrswheelbarrow.com. That's right. Perfect. Well, I've had a bunch of fun chatting with you. It's been totally my pleasure. Thank you again, Kathy. Thank you, Gabriel. Really my pleasure too. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to thedinnerspecial.com for recipes, highlights from every show, super blog articles, and all the wonderful ways to keep in touch on social media. Your culinary journey awaits. So let's get cooking.